Good morning. I'm Cole Foster, and today I get to do the scripture reading for us. Uh, So I'm going to read two bits of scripture. At the tail end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and it would be great if you guys could respond, thanks be to God. The first is uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 12. And then we'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. Chapter 4, 7 through 12 can be found on page uh, 965 of your pew Bible. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me add my welcome. If we haven't met yet, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm excited to be with you guys. Hey, let me make two quick announcements, and then we'll jump into this text. Um, I know Adam made some announcements at the beginning. I think we ran out of bulletins. I'm sorry about that. We'll have those for you next week. But um, this week starts our membership class, and membership's not uh, familiar to everybody, so let me just kind of give a quick like, orientation of what that is for us. It's a way to invite you to participate in our family. So it's not like a Costco membership where you get certain benefits or things like that. It actually is a commitment to each other. It's a commitment to uh, relationships. It's a commitment to um, caring for each other. It's a commitment to kind of helping other people know what it means to be part of the body of Christ. It's a way for you to actually belong. Now, we're in a weird space and time, kind of in this pandemic, and even this last year in particular, there's been lots of transitions and spaces. So as a church, we really value giving you some time and some space. And so I don't want to do double speak here because a lot of you have heard me say, hey, take your time. If you just need to breathe here for a little while and catch your breath, get your legs back underneath you, we would love that. In fact, we would love to be a place where you can just hear the good news of Jesus. You can take that in. You can heal if you need to. And then whenever God is ready to lead you somewhere else, we would be honored if we were like a way station on, on that journey for you. So I want to say that I really mean that. And I don't want to play hard to get. I want to go like, hey, like, come on, like, let's do this. Let's come and join our family. I think what God's doing here is really beautiful. Um, it's pretty homemade. It's pretty vanilla. It's not very flashy, but I think it's genuine, and I want to invite you towards that. So let me just say this. Maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus yet, or maybe this is your very first Sunday, and you're wondering, like, what is this church about? This membership class will be a way for you to hear that, to kind of hear our hearts. We'll talk about why the church exists Uh, at all to begin with, which will be an orienting thing for us just to remember even lots of transitions, even coming out of COVID and online stuff and group stuff and like, what what is it we're doing anyway? Like, why does a church actually exist? We'll talk about what we're trying to do as a church, which will not be very novel. It'll be straight from a passage in Colossians chapter three. And then we'll talk about how you can be meaningfully involved. So we'll, we'll live stream that. 
We'll have recordings for that. If you sign up, we'll make sure you get all of those. Um, but I want to invite you to like, step towards us because we really value participation, not just you watching somebody else perform, but you actually participating. And part of the beauty and mystery of the church is that it's this organic, interdependent body. So we get images of like trees and vines. We get physical bodies. We get buildings. We get families or images that we see in Scripture for, for the church. And so what that means is you are like essential. And nothing's riding on you, and you're essential. So we need people who are part of the body to be part of the body. And you're welcome. It's a way to value you and give you dignity as a person and also say there's things here that could actually help and heal and I'm kind of walk alongside of you in some ways that in those relationships you might actually be encouraged as well. So, so membership is a way to just say, hey, you, you really matter to us. Uh, we want to know you. We want to care for you. And there's a kind of commitment that we make to each other uh, to serve each other, to pray for each other, to use our gifts to help each other, um, and actually then to participate in this body. So, so I want to encourage you to that. It's three weeks. It starts this Sunday. And again, if you're like, man, I, I have my first Sunday. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's a great reason to come. And if you've been here for about a year, great reason for you to come. I think it's for everybody. We won't discriminate. You can just come from wherever you are. We'd love to tell you about what we're trying to do as a church. So that's, that's membership. And there's like a side note to that. Part of this participation thing that's really fun is that we get to serve each other. And as we've kind of grown in the last couple of months, uh, we almost got ready with our kids' ministry. We were kind of like had enough people, and then we jumped by like 25 kids. And so we're in a space now where you get to participate in our kids' ministry, and we would love for you to. So moms and dads, a great chance for you to walk alongside your kids and disciple, those who are empty nesters or those who don't have kids yet. Uh, it's kind of for everybody. And so I think we need about eight more folks because we really are committed to not burning out our volunteers. We're trying to do like a once-a-month rotation, and so if we had enough people, we can maintain that. So I want to invite you to that, to that as well. You don't have to be a member to jump in there, um, but would love for you to serve in our kids' ministry. Okay, that's part B to that first announcement. Second announcement is this, young marrieds or newly marrieds, we're uh, kind of defining that of like one to five years of marriage. I uh, would love to just take a, a couple of evenings with you um, and have a conversation about what marriage is, answer some questions, introduce you to some older couples who can walk alongside of you. And so uh, those dates are in your bulletin. It's towards the end of this month. It's the last two Sunday nights of this month. Uh, so if you're zero to five years in marriage, and if you're like engaged or you're almost engaged, I don't want to like spoil it, but you can come to that if you don't, I don't want to ruin the surprise if you're thinking about it. But if you're like serious about this thing and you want to come, don't make that your first date, but if you're like <laughs> curious and you're moving towards marriage, would love to just invite you to that. So we'll have a pretty um, introductory conversation, just some foundational things about marriage that were huge for me and my wife early in marriage. And then there'll be other couples there that you can just get to know. We'll do lots of just kind of questions and discussion and dialogue. So that's the last two Sunday evenings. It's at one of our members' homes. Uh, if you sign up online, that way we can prepare for snacks and stuff. We'll get you their address as well. But I wanted to let you know what that was and who that's for and why you should come and be a part of that. All right, those are my announcements. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into this text. Jesus, thank you for your church. Even as I announce, like, membership and needs to serve and... Um, I'm so grateful for what you're doing here, and I'm thankful that you're doing things beyond what we can see and touch. You're doing things beyond just people coming. You're doing things that are eternal. You're doing things that are changing people's hearts. You're doing things that are exposing their need for change. You're doing things that uh, we sang about where we confess our need, and you come in your resurrection power, and you meet us. So, so thank you. Th thanks for what you're doing. And as we think about what you're like and who you are, this God of hope that you, that you proclaim to us, that you show us, that you've taught us, that you've embodied for us. Uh, we want to be a people that match that, that are in, in line with and keep up with and uh, pattern our lives after who you are and what you're about. So would you move our hearts this morning to uh, receiving hope in such a way that it makes sense that we would share it. And so I just want to pray now for my friends and everybody who don't know you. Uh, this could feel strange for them to kind of hear an invitation sermon, uh, but I pray they would just feel invited. I pray it would come as, as an invitation to them in particular. So I thought I'd proclaim and hope that somebody else could maybe land on their own heart first. And for those who a conversation about proclaiming hope, immediately they feel shame or regret or they feel some unease or anxiety. Would you just meet them there? Would you calm that and would you, would you help? And would you increase all of our 
understanding of what you've done for us in such a way that it just makes sense that we would want to proclaim that. I pray for like a natural growth in us, that hope inside of our hearts would, would spill over to other people. So would you use your word to do that? Use your spirit to do that? Help us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, so if you're new with us, we've been in a series on hope for a couple of reasons. One is just the space that we live in in the world where it's a constant need. If there wasn't a pandemic, you would still need to hear about hope. But as we thought about coming up on kind of the second year mark of the pandemic and thinking about those of you guys who are really struggling in your jobs and really struggling with with your relationships, we face some, some loss. And so how do we talk about, in an overt way, the hope that Jesus offers us? So that was one driving motivation, to be a people that proclaim hope, that talk about hope, and offer hope, and make sense of what to do in this crazy world. And we just changed our name as a church. So for 60-plus years, we've been in this space, and we've had a couple of different names in that history. But just a few months ago, we changed our name from Leewood Baptist Church to Hope Community Church. And it's been a long conversation, probably more than a decade, to be honest, that the church has been having. But we, we just did that. And so we thought, man, it's a great opportunity coming in the new year to talk about what do we mean by that? What do we want that to represent? So when you tell somebody that you visited Hope Community Church or you, you go to Hope Community Church or you took the three-week membership class and now you're a member at Hope Community Church, what, what is it that that actually means? So what are we trying to embody? So I often think about our church as like a farm or organic farming, not because that's my background, but I think it's a helpful way to talk about something that's natural, something that's kind of indigenous to an area, something that takes a long time to cultivate, something that's beautiful, something that's life-giving. And so kind of this farming illustration I'll use a lot with our staff and with people to talk about what we're trying to do. We're not trying to manufacture anything. We're not trying to push anything. We're not trying to make something grow that wouldn't naturally grow. We're trying to see what God wants to do kind of an organic way. And organic doesn't just mean like messy or haphazard or unorganized. Like, like when my kids are told to clean their room, it's not that they have organic rooms. The rooms are just messy. So it's not, it's not messy and chaotic. Organic means natural. And to be really honest, my understanding of why organic produce is so much more expensive is it's harder than just spraying everything with pesticides and making everything four times the size it's supposed to be. That that's actually easier to do than to actually commit yourself to organic farming. So, so we're committed to that as a people. So if that's an illustration, then there's been some seeds we've tried to plant. One is hope for your past. To think about the hope of Jesus being applied to places of like shame, places of regret. We were in an Old Testament book of Lamentations and just gave some permission to be honest about things that we wish were different about where we come from and what's happened in our lives. And so we want to be a people of hope and for that to happen, it means we have to be a place that, that's honest about regret, that can deal with shame, that can talk about brokenness. So we try to throw some of that seed into this field. And then we talked about hope for the present and really try to think about anxiety. We were in Romans chapter 5, and we saw in there this progression that, that suffering produces things inside of us like character and endurance, and that brings about a kind of hope. And so the very things that are actually are overwhelming or stressful, the things we would call suffering, the things that give us anxiety, those are the very things that God is using to actually produce hope inside of us. So to be an honest, hopeful people is to engage in the present world around us with, with hope, asking God to use those things, not just get us out of those things, but use those things to deepen us, to clarify for us, to kind of grow us as a people. There are things that only grow in the soil of suffering. There's stuff that only happens in your life because life is hard. So God's design is not haphazard or disorganized. It's actually very intentional. He refines us. He strengthens us. He grows us in that soil of suffering. So to be a hopeful people is not to be naive and say everything's going to be fine tomorrow. Although ultimately we have this hope for the future that God does make all things new. But in the meantime, we live in a kind of a chaotic garden. There's all kinds of stuff that grows. There's weeds and wheat that grow up together. And so how do we think about the space of that, the pressure of that, the anxiety of that, some of the tension of that? To be a hopeful people is to be able to deal with anxiety and engage God in our present suffering. And then last week we talked about being a people that were hopeful for the future. We looked at a passage in... Uh, First Peter, 
kind of gives us an identity as, as chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people that belong to God. And from that secure identity, we have a future hope for us. So whatever is going to come tomorrow, whatever would take place down the road, it's not going to violate that identity. And so there's a kind of security that happens because we rest our hope in Jesus now that prepares us, it gives us endurance, it gives us assurance for the future. So to be a hopeful people is to be a courageous people that faces the future and says, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know God will be there with me. I know because we are his daughters and sons, he's going to guide us. He may do things in us that we don't understand, but as he's doing that, it will always be redemptive. That's what it means to be a hopeful people. And in that passage in First Peter, there's this phrase there that we should proclaim his excellencies. We are people who are adopted, we're chosen, we're a royal priesthood, we've been changed, we were his enemies, we were slaves, we were uh, abandoning kind of who he was and what he loved, and we've actually have been redeemed and reconciled to him, and now we proclaim that. So, so today I want to just kind of end our series to say we want to be a people that proclaim hope. Now, everything I've just said is a kind of proclamation of hope. So to be a people that preach the gospel good news to ourselves— to say to my own heart, to my own soul, hey, this is good news of who Jesus is, right? to proclaim it to ourselves individually and to our church. And then we want to be a people that also proclaim outwardly, that, that value people, that have a kind of compassion and a kind of courage that comes out of understanding what it means to be separated from God, have a, a longing to see people reconciled to Him, to be a people that proclaim hope to the world around us. And so we actually are trying to embed in our name a way for you to talk about hope. So when you say where you go to church, it should be like one step into talking about hope. What was that church about? Oh man, we're about the hope that only Jesus can provide. What we did on the cross is your, your only hope. That's what we talk about every Sunday. You, you should come. And you can take the membership class. It's only three weeks long. And I'll, I'll leave that joke aside from here. But, but in that space, right, it's this invitation to say, hey, there is hope. Now here's the deal. Christians don't have a corner on the market of the offer of hope. Every purchase you make has some sort of offer of hope in it. If you own this, if you have this, it's going to make your life better. Every religion has some sort of framework to give you hope or get you hope if you obey enough or do the right kinds of things or sacrifice or change enough. But what is exclusive about the offer of hope in Christianity is that it's rooted in a person. It's not a product that you would grab a hold of or something that you would do or anything you could perform. It's rooted in a person. So Colossians 1 says that, that Jesus is the one who, who is the hope. He embodies it. He is it. He accomplished it for us. When we talk about hope as a church, we're not talking about just a feeling or a positive attitude. We're talking about something that's rooted and grounded in what Christ has done historically so you can trust it. That's secure enough to hold you for your future, because it's not an experience or a feeling primarily. It comes out of what Christ has already accomplished for you, and that changes your experiences, and that affects your, your feelings. So that's where we want to go as a people. Now, this is kind of fun for me. Let me just stop for a second. Uh, and I was just like renaming our church. We did a little bit of like logo design, and so I want to just like show you something just so when you see it, you know what's going on with how and why we chose our logo. So this is our new logo. Hey, we should place bets on how long the vinyl sign will be out there, by the way. It could be like years, our temporary sign. We'll see what happens. But um, uh, which would be a great stewardship if we did that. Okay, so, so this is kind of our, our new design. There's both the cross and the word. And we tried to do a couple things. One is we wanted to communicate that we're not just like this new church that dropped out of nowhere. So the design had in mind some like history, some tradition. So it wasn't like new modern fonts. We tried to use some classic things to say, hey, we're a church that has a history. We're not just a, a brand new church out of nowhere. We actually have a 60-plus year history that we are thankful for. And so we try to give a classic kind of look even to the, the words and to the font. And then this cross was really significant. So I think we have one of, of just the cross. Two things I want you to notice about this. The way the inside is designed is a nod to the crosses on the outside of our building. If you kind of come down uh, state line, you'll see kind of right behind me, there's this big cross on our building, right, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And the way it's designed kind of has these edges to it that we try to capture in the way those white lines are designed there. So again, we're trying to say, hey, we are rooted in something, not our building, 
but in something that's bigger than us, it's historic, it's been around for a long time. We're not just inventing church, we're, we're part of something that's rooted. That's really important for us. It's a value for us. It's one of the reasons why you feel drawn to this place, is that there's a history here. There's people that have been here for 60 plus years. I'd love for you to get to know them and kind of hear their stories and listen to their faithfulness. And, and they encounter suffering and hope in different ways because they've walked with Jesus for a really long time. So, so we want to say, hey, we're part of something deeper and bigger. And then the way it's designed, too, with these little points on the edge is that the cross is designed to point outward. It's not just about the building or about our history. It has a motion to it. There's a design in the tips of that cross to be little arrows that are pointing outward. So even in our very design, every time you see this little logo on State Line or on a bulletin or on a card or on our website, I want you to think about being rooted in something that's ancient and moving that outward. That, that there's a, a motion to hope, there's a momentum to hope that our church wants to embody, that the Bible actually communicates really clearly. The book of Scripture is a book of hope. That God is an outgoing, hope-proclaiming God. What you see from page after page after page is God relentlessly committed to restoring His people and offering them hope in the midst of chaos and sin and brokenness. It's His faithfulness juxtaposed to our unfaithfulness that actually gives us hope. And God is a, a proclaiming hope kind of God. So to be His people is then to, to match that. So, so historically rooted and then going outward is things we're trying to capture even in our design. Okay, I think that actually may uh, not be like the most important thing I'd said, but may have the most staying power for you. That when you see that, to go, oh yeah, that's right. This is a hope that goes outward. Our church has to be outward facing. There's something that God's doing here that has to be shared with the world. And if you've been here very long, you know it's not that we're so impressive. You know it's what God is doing to actually restore and ransom lives that must be that must be shared. So that's the kind of people we want to be when we talk about proclaiming. Okay, so in that space then, I chose these two little snapshots from 2 Corinthians to kind of capture some framework for us about how to think about proclaiming hope. And even in my prayer, I'm trying to just acknowledge the fact, maybe you've been in the church for a long time, and you've heard lots of talks on evangelism, or bringing your friends to church, or sharing your faith, and maybe that's gone great for you, maybe that hasn't gone great for you, maybe it's been really confusing. A lot of us feel this ache inside of like, man, I wish I was sharing the hope of Jesus more naturally and more frequently in, in our lives. So what I want to do with this passage is plant a couple of more seeds about what it means to be a proclaiming people. And I think these two snapshots, in a lot of ways are a summary of 2 Corinthians, I think these two snapshots give us some things to hold on to that would kind of grow inside of our hearts. We could say hundreds of things about the need to proclaim hope or how to proclaim hope. What I want to do is give you actually seven little principles or ideas from this text. Now, as I say seven things from this text, and you were here last week, you heard Jimmy Dodd say, you should only ever do three, and he pushed us with four. So this is not me like doubling down when I see your four and I raise you seven. I feel like a deep insecurity about having seven points, but I couldn't get it down any smaller than that. So here's what I want you to kind of understand. I don't care if you can remember these points because they're straight from the text. So next time you read the text, it will be jogged in your memory. So it doesn't matter to me whether or not you write all of them down or whether or not you can see all of them. But if you can imagine this garden, what I want to do is kind of plant seven rows. We're going to put seven kind of sets of seed in the ground. And I'm just going to put that little marker in front of the row so that when it grows up, we know what to call it. I don't know if you've ever done like backyard gardening or something like that, but we found a couple of different times. And the first time we did gardening, we just planted stuff and didn't mark it at all. And we're not like farmers, so as soon as stuff starts growing, we're like, dang, I don't know if that's a weed. It's, it kind of smells good, but maybe that's not a good thing. I don't know what to do with that, right? So we didn't know what was actually growing in our garden, even though we're the ones who had planted it. So the next time then, we just put these little plastic signs to say, hey, this is where the onions are, and this is where the cilantro is, this is where the jalapeno peppers are, this is where the tomatoes are as you grow a salsa garden, which is as far as we ever got in our, in our gardening, right? So, but marking them is helpful because we don't always know what it looks like early on as it grows. So I want to give you like seven things to hold on to, seven encouragements, seven things this text frames for us when we think about being a people that proclaim hope. And I want to move through them fast. So look with me in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
All right, so we're dropping in in a couple of chapters of the, of the book. This is the second letter that Paul has written. Some scholars say there might have even been more letters. He references some hard conversations. Essentially, what he's been saying is that there's some tension and some pressure and some persecution they've been experiencing. He's been experiencing it. They've been experiencing it. And he's trying to walk them through how to make sense of that. How do you think about the kind of suffering that we've experienced? And so looking like chapter 1, verse 10, he says that God has delivered us in the past from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us Again, this future hope. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So you see in that just that little verse, hey, we're in a space where things are tough, where things are hard, where we need some kind of deliverance. And then if you go forward, then you see this pressure or persecution has created some conflict or tension for them inside the church. And so even some of his own credentials and his influence is being questioned there's lots of teachers in the first century trying to make sense of what God's doing. So in that space, there's like competing voices and false prophets and people that come and actually present themselves as even like super apostles, we're told. So here's Paul just trying to validate his ministry, not with how amazing he is, but with what God is actually doing. That's kind of what chapter 2 is about. And then he goes into this space where he says, hey, and what I've been talking about is not the old way. What is so beautiful about the ministry we have is that we're talking about the new covenant. If you're brand new to church, that may not make a lot of sense, but what you have in the Bible is a whole lot of Old Testament passages and books where God was working with his people for millennium, making promises and keeping them, and we call that the Old Covenant. And it was pointing to both our need for God, it was a way for us to relate to God by faith through the law, but it was never designed to actually rescue us and save us. It was always pointing to a Savior that will come. So even like the animal sacrifices are these vivid snapshots and portraits that one day you'll need another sacrifice that would come and actually help and cleanse. And the Bible is so clear, the blood of bulls and goats could never actually cleanse our sin. They were always pointing to the blood of another one who would come and die in our place. And so Jesus comes to fulfill all those promises. He lines up with the Old Testament teaching of what the Messiah was going to be about. He lives this ordinary life in some ways, has this extraordinary death that's a substitute for us in ways that actually welcome us to God. And that keeps a promise that God made to move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So passages in like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God promises, hey, one day I'm going to come and this Old Covenant will pass away and a New Covenant will come out of it. One that moves from the outside to the inside, that takes your hearts of stone and gives you hearts of flesh. And Jesus is the one who did that. So in chapter 3, Paul's saying, hey, I came to preach the new covenant to you, this hopeful thing. The old covenant could only tell you that you couldn't be righteous on your own. The new covenant came and gave you a way to be righteous through the righteousness of Jesus. That's kind of where he's, he's been going in this space. And so we see as he's unpacking that in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, a, a hope that Christ did all the work for us to make a new covenant, we are very bold. Not like the Old Testament prophets, but in a brand new way, trusting in God, this hope we have through Jesus is making us bold to actually share. So that's kind of where we've been. There's some conflict. There's some weakness. He's saying, I didn't come and impress you. There's a lot of struggle that's going on. And he's saying that struggle is not evidence that it's not real. God is actually doing something that's very real in, in the struggle. And so we come in chapter 4, verse 7, and he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So first thing I want you to see, the first row I want to plant is, is a surprising container of hope. Paul's going to surprise us with what is the vessel that holds this hope. He says there's this treasure, and the treasure is this story of what God has done. We see it in verse 6 just above that. For God who said that let light shine in the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The beautiful treasure is the gospel story that God kept his promises in Jesus to make us right with God. That's, that's the treasure. It's eternal. It's beautiful. It's been promised for millennium. It lasts for forever. That, that's the treasure. And he says, we have this treasure which is located in jars of clay. Speaking of, of us. And jars of clay would be imagery of frailty, of something very common. Not, not to take away dignity from you, but just to locate and resize us in such a way to say, God takes something eternal and beautiful, something transcendent, and he locates it in something fragile and frail. 
you and, and me. He puts the eternal gospel into our lives and hearts so that we can share it. And he says he did that so that the surpassing power which belongs to God and not to us might be shown to everyone. So some of you guys that are in like the design world, you think about the way you use contrasting colors kind of to make something kind of pop or to stand out. What he's saying is we take this eternal message and beautiful design of what God has done in the gospel, and by putting it in these little clay pots, it makes it pop. It shows the surpassing power that we have, that the power actually then belongs to God and not to us. So here's the first idea. We're not a proclaiming hope people because we're amazing. It's not a statement that we're better than somebody else or we have it more figured out than somebody else or that we've arrived and somebody else hasn't. He says, God is the one who is the most surpassing, beautiful power that you're actually sharing. You are like this little jar of clay. It's feeble and frail and it doesn't last. Even he's been talking about our bodies that are are temporal earlier in this letter and that's what your body is. You, You won't in this life, your physical body won't last for forever, but the message that you share with people does actually last for forever. It's an invitation to weakness. It's an invitation to own our weakness, to be honest about our weakness. And what Paul's been saying about his own life is, hey, what proves that God is real is not how impressive I am. It's actually in my lowliness and weakness and me kind of being very human In that space, when I proclaim to you this eternal power of God and he changes people around you, God is the one who looks amazing. So when it comes to proclaiming hope, we're not proclaiming how amazing we are. But the church has somehow got its act together. In fact, I'm studying Ephesians with a couple of our our guys in the church on, on Wednesday mornings and we're in this section talking about the church and it's just this mysterious broken place. Our, our church, Hope Community Church, is a mysteriously broken place. If you've been a part of churches at all in your life, you know they are broken places. The people that you interact with are broken people. You yourself are, are broken. To just stop for a second and acknowledge, kind of when it comes to proclaiming hope, there's a surprising container that that hope is rooted in. actually gives us permission to be honest about our frailty. That we don't have to be a proud people. Right? It, it, would, it would stir like humility in us. It would also set expectations of what it means to actually follow God. It's not like trust Jesus and everything gets better, right? The the gospel we're offering is not a bait and switch of of come come and die and then you get everything you ever wanted. You actually stay in this space where where it's pretty rough, where we actually have longings until we die. We're not a people that have everything satisfied in this life. We are longing for the next, even though what is most essential about our brokenness has been healed in Christ. It's not that now all of a sudden we are a powerful people. So he says in verse Eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're, we're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. But by holding on to the frailty, actually the beauty of who God is is made clear. It's, it's on display in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake. It's always going to be like this. So so that's actually an invitation into patience and humility with your own self. It's not as if you could get your act together and then not need Jesus anymore. We're always going to be in a place where we're being given over to death in ways that actually we have a perpetual and obvious need for God. And that's the hope that we share with other people, right? It's a humble hope. It's a realistic, not an idealistic hope. And it's a space where you can share something that feels real to other people. It's not like we're selling some product that if they were to buy it, then everything all of a sudden is amazing. What's amazing is it would be loved by God, that our sins are forgiven, that we're reconciled to him, but we still live in the brokenness. We never stop being jars of clay. So there's a humility that sets some expectations for us of, of the struggle of life, and there's an invitation in that to people that feel broken. If this whole thing is made up of clay pots and you feel really frail, you feel really undone. You feel really fragile. You feel like you have cracks everywhere. You can't even hold water at all. You're welcome. God's not saying fix yourself and clean your act up and confess everything and get right and prove yourself for a season and then you can come. He comes to clay pots and he pours this eternal glory into it. 
He shows himself to be strong even in our weakness, and that has a kind of invitation to you. So, so to be a clay pot isn't to take away our dignity or to um, humiliate us, but it does make us a humble people. It sets expectations, and there's an invitation in that space for us. All right, so in that space, we'll always need Jesus, and that's actually a good thing. Now let's turn over to chapter 5, starting in verse 14. So one row is this surprising container, and we're going to go faster, I promise. Second row is a freeing motivation. Look in verse 14. He says this, that the love of Christ compels us. I don't know what has motivated you in the past to think about sharing the good news of Jesus with people, but this text says that what should be driving us is the love of Christ. It's not shame for not doing it well enough so that we can get out of that and prove ourselves worthy. It's not some like imperialism to come and take over the world. It's simply sharing the love of Christ. It's what actually drives us. So it's a freeing motivation to be reconciled to God first, to receive in our bodies the beauty of who He is, and then to begin to share that with other people and to be motivated by love. What you are proclaiming to people is a message of love. As people who have received love, the entry point into Christianity is not you being amazing, it's you knowing that you need love. That you know you're unworthy of love, that your sin has separated you from God, and that He died in your place in such a way that made it possible for you to be reconciled to Him. That is the entry point. And as that washes over us and changes us, we can even translate this like love of God compels us. The love of God constrains us, some translations say. The love of God is what controls us. There's a a freeing motivation. So we're not going to be a guilt-ridden people taking score of how many times we've shared our faith from week to week. We want to be a people that overflow in love, receiving in our broken bodies, in our little clay pots of lives, the eternal glory of who God is. As we've experienced His love, we want to be motivated from that place as well. So when you think about being a people that proclaim hope, don't think shame and ought to and should think love. Now, now with earnestness, because you realize what it means to be separated from God and to have the weight of your sin upon yourself, right? So love actually is moved into action to actually share the good news with people, but it's not something different than love. So to be a people that proclaim hope from a motivation of love, we see the first part of verse 14 in chapter 5. Okay, a couple more verses here. Uh, Look with me in verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whom their sake he died and was raised. This third row is that you are blown away by the costly exchange of the gospel. That he took your sin upon himself and he gives you his life. That the center of this message is not rules and regulations and cleaning your act up. It is a costly exchange where God himself was willing to die in your place. We've concluded this, that that one has died for all. And and therefore, everything has changed and we've all died in that space where we can let go of grasping for our own identity. It's an invitation to trust Jesus for our identity to put all of our hope in what he's accomplished for us. It's not a commitment to a non-self to die to yourself. It's a commitment not to build your own identity, to kind of create your own self, to realize that he's the one who actually gives you identity and hope, and you begin to live out of that. So there's this costly exchange, recognizing at the center of this thing is God himself dying in our place. So it's a sober hope. It's a hopeful hope. It's rooted in love, but it's a sober-minded hope remembering what it cost our Savior to ransom His people. So so there's a seriousness. There's a sober-mindedness. There's a, a gratitude. There's a weight to it, but not one that takes away hope or that would erase love. It actually only amplifies and increases that. The more you realize the exchange, what Christ did in your place, I think the more joy you have. I think the more hope you have when you realize that he died once and for all to bring you to God. It sets you free when it comes to your own struggles with sin, when it comes to how you're wrestling with kind of obedience in this life. And because we're jars of clay, you don't have to get your act together to be able to share hope. You can actually share hope in the middle of your own struggle. 
Because you were never right with God because of your great behavior. You're only right with God because of this costly exchange. So what you're sharing with people is that Christ died in their place. And you can be as broken as the day is long. And actually, the Scripture would say that makes it more compelling. Your, your frailty and God saving someone like you makes it compelling to your neighbors and your children to go, well, man, if God can save him, then surely he can save me as well. That, that's the idea. The costly exchange is the centerpiece of this good news that we are, are sharing. Okay, go on from there to, to what I want to call the broad scope of hope. That's the only one you're going to remember. But the broad scope of hope. Look with me in verse 16. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard nobody according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Here's what I mean by the broad scope of hope. This passage is full of alls. It's for anyone who will trust Jesus. He says it's for actually the whole world in verse 19. He says in verse 17 that anyone who is in Christ. He says in verse 14, twice he says that Christ died for all. The scope is for everyone. If this is a message for broken pots, that means nobody is ever too far gone. Two applications. One for you. You're not too far gone. I don't know what's happened. I don't know what happened last night. I don't know what this pandemic has been like. I don't know what your college days were like. I don't know what kind of regrets you have. But the scope of hope that we're proclaiming is that it is available to all who will trust in Jesus. No one is ever too far gone, including you. And to those around you, no one is ever too far gone. The reason why we have so many stories in the Scripture is there's so many examples of people who felt too far gone that God actually redeemed and rescued, transformed and changed, adopted as His children, showed grace and mercy to them. Which means the scope of hope for our friends and family, maybe you've been praying for decades for somebody, that there's no hope, it's like too far. No person could ever get too far to outrun the hope of Jesus, right? It's an eternal hope. It's a treasure that he has. He's already paid the exchange. Anyone who will trust in him can be saved. So we have this row of proclaiming hope that we are a courageous people. Not calculating like, ah, that guy's probably not very interested. I'll move on. Like the way the Bible describes even sowing seeds of the gospel, it's fascinating. It says the sower goes out in the field. He's throwing it into the bushes. He's throwing it on the rocky path. He's throwing it under the thorns. He's throwing it in where he knows the soil is shallow. He's throwing it in what he thinks is good soil. It's going everywhere. So when we think about the scope of hope, we are broad in who we share with, not narrow. He just says, hey, it's, it's for all. And then the scope of transformation is also so beautiful. Look in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. The scope of hope in your life is that you can actually be transformed and made new, that the old way, the old impulses actually can be healed. So, so we never get out of being clay pots. We're always dependent people, but, but God is making things new inside of our hearts. So it is for all, so we should share it with all. And it has this scope to kind of address every area of our life. That's actually really, really good news. So can we be kind of people that proclaim hope on a broad scale. Let's say, man, even you're really different than me, even you have a different background than me, even you have questions I don't have answers to, I still want to embody this kind of message of hope with you because what God's done inside of me, the exchange that I fully believe, this love that's motivating, and I don't have to have my act together to come and share it with you because it's not about me anyway, it's about what Christ has done. So here's a row of seeds we want to plant that over time will give rise to courage in us. If we can understand God's desire is to have this broad scope of hope. And that is what you see in the Bible. You see God inviting people that are weak and distant, even uninterested sometimes, even hostile sometimes. And he calls them to himself, which is so beautiful. Okay, the fifth row is, is a relational result to this hope. Like, I don't care if you know the names or not. But the relational result of this is so beautiful that I want to plant this seed so over time what will grow inside of us is we realize it's not just a transaction about forgiveness of sins. It's a relationship God's offered us into. So, so verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's, it's a relational result that happens from this hope. Hey, so forgiveness of sins is amazing. And you can't have the gospel without that. If you think that you can earn your way to God by atoning for your own sin, then you can't actually be a Christian. It's only by trusting Christ to die in your place to forgive you of your sins. That's where it starts. Forgiveness of sins is amazing. But the beauty of the gospel is it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop with getting you back to zero and having your debts paid. God invites you into a relationship, a reconciling relationship with himself. In Christ, he was reconciling to himself everyone who would believe. In Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but so that they could actually be in a relationship. This hope we proclaim has a relational result. We're not inviting people into an organization. We're not inviting people to a new set of rules. We're not inviting people to a new set of ethics. We're inviting people into a relationship. For God to be reconciled to us is a relational term. He gives us that. And then he says, sixth, that, that moves into a joyful commissioning. This relational result, he says, moves to us sharing this ministry of reconciliation. Right? He commissions us as ambassadors in verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. What's the therefore? The therefore is that God has reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says it twice, and he links them together. Because we've been reconciled to God, now we can go and share in this ministry of reconciliation to others. So there's a relational result we have with God, and it actually gives us a joyful commissioning as his ambassadors. To be made in the image of God and to share his mission with him is to embody the hope that he actually gives us and to joyfully share that with other people. To, to represent him, this God of love and sacrifice and mercy, who welcomes clay pots to himself, who costly exchanges with them their sin for his righteousness, who, who welcomes them to himself. Like This is a joyful commissioning to go and share the good news with people who are desperate to hear it, even if they have so put up barriers and walls and coping mechanisms, they don't even feel it anymore. The human condition is one of a vacuum of need that could never be filled with anything except for God. So you just know your friends and neighbors and family members, your co-workers, the people in your life, they have this hole that only Christ can fill. And until he fills it, they're going to fill it with all kinds of other things that could never actually satisfy. So you have a joyful commissioning to step towards the ministry and mission of God to share what he has done with other people. That's, that's row six I want to give you. And the last row, row seven, is in verse 21. And it's just a foundational summary. Hey, can we just wrap our mind around the good news of the gospel in succinct ways and hear this, verse 21 of chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a simplicity to this beautiful, intricate, amazing, mind-blowing, eternal message that simply is God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin gets exchanged for his righteousness so that we can be in relationship. So to be a people in row seven of this little garden who, who proclaim and know the good news of the gospel. We're not proclaiming like uh, our church or we're not proclaiming our traditions. We're not proclaiming come be like us. We're proclaiming that Christ took our place. Hey, when I look at all of that, what I love about where we are as a church is that there's like no place for us to pretend that we're amazing. Our story as little clay pots is a space where we're saying, hey, we're broken as a people. One of the reasons why I want to honor our legacy is because it's a legacy where God looks amazing. We have faithful people here, but our church has been through a whole lot of pain, and God has sustained us through that. And to continue just to declare that as a church, even like right now, it would kind of be absurd to deny that we are needy people. There may be a day, though, where we would grow towards arrogance or we might get stable enough. We might get in a space where we feel like we've somehow arrived. So to have just some seeds planted of, oh, no, no, no. Hey, we never get away from being kind of this surprising container of clay pots. Like that actually is where we'll always stay. And that's an invitation to you wherever you are to come and join us. It's not an invitation to come be amazing and awesome. 
It's an invitation to come and share the hope of Jesus in a relational way that's motivated by love, that understands the exchange that has taken place, that realizes God has invited us into a relationship that we actually get to share with other people. And it's something that's so profound, but you can hold on to it in the simple truth that God took your place, which is what we celebrate in communion every single week. So we actually proclaim this hope every week when we take communion. In this little cup that you have, you have juice that represents the blood of Christ shed for you. And you have a little wafer that represents his broken body that was broken on your behalf to pay for your sins. And by taking that meal, you're saying, this is my hope. This is what I'm trusting, and this is where I'm putting all of the weight for my life is in this one who died in my place. And I'm not trying to get away from that death. I'm actually embracing that death. It's changing who I am. We rehearse that together every week. It's actually a safeguard for us to take communion every week. So if I start preaching, here's how you can be amazing, rather than here's how you can trust Jesus, we're, we're in big trouble. So the communion kind of has a safeguard for us, and it's a beautiful reminder to you that whatever happened this last week, Christ died in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and free. So you can take a deep breath, receive the joy, the love, be, be reconciled to him, remember his sacrifice, and then you can go back out next week and proclaim hope as this little broken pot. So I want to invite you to take communion with me now. If you're not a follower of Jesus, communion is for those who are trusting in Christ. There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of like what it could sound like for you to pray and ask God to kind of engage with you. But for those who are taking communion, who are trusting Christ, like I want to ask you as you do that to remember the good news of what he's done and ask God to fill you with that kind of hope so that you might actually proclaim it this next week. So let me just pray for us. We'll take communion We'll sing some more songs, and then I'll commission you out as ambassadors to go proclaim hope into this lost and dying world. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for what you've done, and thank you for this passage. There's a ton there. Thanks for the reminders of our frailty. Thanks for the beauty of what you've done. Thanks that what's amazing about the hope that we're offering is you. At the center of how we understand how amazing you are, here you come as a sacrifice, Here you come emptying yourself. Here you come taking the place of of rebels and sinners who actually rejected you and pushed away from you. And in your love, you rescued and ransomed and welcomed them. That that is mind-blowing, and it is a solid foundation for hope. So for my brothers and sisters who are trusting you, would you fill them now with a reminder of what you've done? They use this time actually to confess and ask for you to come close to them, to be reconciled to you. And then for those who are wondering if you're real, would you speak to them, God? Would you proclaim hope to their hearts even now in this moment? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you didn't grab a cup, there's some here in the front. There's also some just outside those back doors. We'll take communion and then we'll sing together again.